You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to the Tech Tank Podcast. We're so excited about this new episode, and we're also very sad. Not a single week this year has passed without multiple mass shootings. Specifically, 343 people have been killed and 1,391 injured through July 4th of this year. And most notably, and this should never be the case, the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where a troubled 18-year-old conducted the deadliest of them all in a decade, not only killed his grandmother, but 19 children and two teachers from the Robb Elementary School. We're continuously seeing these folks. And as many of you are probably thinking, as you hear my voice, what are we going to do about it? Buffalo was no exception. In Buffalo, New York, a white gunman killed 10 black elders in a mass shooting at a supermarket. Imagine that. These and other events that continue to happen in shopping malls and grocery stores, at schools, in public parks are both devastating and becoming normal. And one thing that we're finding out that's a common thread among all of these vicious attacks is technology. And so what we wanted to do today on our Tech Tank podcast is really examine the role of technology in these latest mass shootings and specifically look at public sentiment online, both from the perspective of the person who is committing these crimes as well as the people affected. And I'm really excited with the two guests we have. One is Daryl West, my co-host of Tech Tank, my and the vice president and director of governance studies, who holds the Douglas Dillon Chair in governmental studies at the Brookings Institution, and he's also a senior fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation, of which I'm the second director after him, <laughs> and Carol Graham who I am so excited to have on the podcast. She's also my colleague, who is a Leo Pasvatsky Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, a College Park professor at the University of Maryland, and a senior scientist at Gallup. And I'm excited about Carol being here because I know she often does not delve directly in tech policy, but we got you now <laughs> on this podcast. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Carol, for joining me today. Thanks, Thanks Nicole. Nicole. It's great to be with you. Yeah. So let's jump into this. Like I said, this is going to be an interesting conversation, but it's also quite disturbing. And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that there are families who are experiencing the effects of what has happened in this physical world with regards to these mass shootings. So, Dara, I kind of want to start with you, because in addition to what you do in tech policy, you're also an expert when it comes to polarization. And I'd love to hear from you how you think these recent events have really raised awareness around the role of the internet in fueling white supremacists or online extremist activities. Because what we're hearing 
I think it is sort of like as a matter of fact, more so in the journalist accounts, is that many of the people who are the perpetrators were online, right, dealing with these things. So can you tell us more about how we got here and how this has happened? Yes. Now, that is a great question. And certainly the Internet is fueling white supremacy and online extremism and therefore playing a role in these mass shootings that you've been talking about. And the problem that I see is we actually have a rather toxic information ecosystem right now. Social media makes it easy for extremists to connect with one another. Like in the pre-digital world, especially in small communities, it would often hard for people with extreme views to find one another. In the world of the internet, the world of social media, with YouTube videos being omnipresent, it's easy to find extremists. They're basically one or two clicks away. And so when you look at the various mass shootings that have taken place, once the police start to investigate these individuals, they often find that they are part of these online communities of like-minded people where they will basically share their views reinforce each other's predispositions, their hatred for particular groups in society, and sometimes provide like best practices on how to shoot people. This is how you arm yourself. A lot of these people now wear body armor when they go in, so it's harder for the police to take them out. And so the online portion of this epidemic of gun violence that we're talking about is a big part of the problem. Yeah, and I want to speak a little bit about that, Daryl, if you don't mind. I mean, I've not necessarily gone down some of those holes in the web where we're seeing this polarized conversation happen. But tell us a little bit for people who don't quite understand, like, what are people talking about in these communities that would inspire them to go out and activate all these things? Well, a lot of the emotion that is driving this kind of violence is just pure hatred. Sometimes it's raw racism. Sometimes it's anti-Semitism. So basically, there are people who do not like the growing diversification of American society. They are rebelling against it, and they are attacking people who are different from themselves because they don't like what is happening in American society. Oftentimes, these are young people. Sometimes I'm really shocked at the people who are committing these acts of gun violence are 18 years old or 19 years old, or sometimes even younger than that. And I do worry about the number of young people who are getting radicalized. A lot of ultra-nationalists actually are drawing on young people. Rural communities, of course, are more conservative uh, than uh, the rest of the country. So that is an active recruiting uh, ground. But even in large cities, there are people who just feel marginalized and alienated from contemporary American society. And so they are looking for other people who share their anger, who share their resentment, and who want to act out on these types of things. And so the technology angle is important because in many respects, it is facilitating online extremism. I just recently gave a talk and I was talking about these amplified messages that in many respects allow us this comfort, right, to have these conversations among like-minded people and not necessarily taking us out of these zones where we can actually find, you know, some common or in your case, when you talk about young people, the type of care, right, that we need young people to have when they're developing these ideologies. Now, Carol, well, I, I, can I yeah. just add to that theme? 
not from my technology point of view, which is very limited, but from my work on despair. And one thing we find, and I know Daryl and I've talked about this in sort of other contexts, but people who don't have anywhere to go, who are essentially in despair, who do not see a better future for themselves or any future at all, including many of these young people that Daryl is talking about and people on whom, whom I've studied in depth, People in despair are much more vulnerable to misinformation and radicalization. They don't have anything to lose, so to speak, right? They don't have a future that they're going to jeopardize by doing something radical or something unusual. Um, So I totally agree with him that the media makes it easier for them to get that information, but that they are definitely tapping into already vulnerable cohorts. Carol, I want to pick up on you. I read all your stuff. Like, how did we get here? with these young people before we go into what the public is actually saying online? How did we actually get to this moment of despair with these young people? Because it's a big issue right now in terms of why are we seeing so many young people finding comfort in these very harmful activities? I mean, this could be adjacent to other harmful activities that are happening, but how do we get here? So uh, it's, it's obviously a complex story, but the simple version, you have a very large population cohort in the U.S. that is becoming a minority but doesn't like it, which is is whites, is particularly blue-collar whites. And they their, their lifestyles of the past just don't, or they're not viable anymore. You cannot graduate just public high school, get a great stable job working in a factory or working in the mines or whatever. These are not glamorous jobs, but they were steady and respected. And you led a sort of middle-class, stable, blue-collar life. And minorities were excluded from the better jobs. This is in the past. But now what's happening is minorities are catching up, right? They're making up education gaps, marriage gaps, health gaps. They're still, I'm not saying they're not disadvantaged, but they're gradually making progress. Meanwhile, what's happened, both in terms of jobs and opportunities, but also in terms of education outlooks and other things, is blue-collar, low-income whites essentially have fallen behind. They don't have a trajectory of having to invest more in their education to get ahead. That Before, they just did what they did, and they worked hard, and there was their life. And now labor markets are changing. There's more competition. Minorities know they have to invest in education to get ahead. And one of the things I've been doing, and it doesn't answer your question fully, but it certainly gives a hint at it, is that low-income minorities are much more likely to want to invest in higher education. It doesn't have to be college, but some form of education because they know there's the only way they have a future and their families or someone in their community, they have a mentor who supports them and they do have stronger communities. White communities have fallen apart. But what was really disturbing about my interviews with low-income white adolescents was many of them were graduating high school. Virtually none of them wanted to go to college, maybe one out of my interview batch of 50 kids And none of their parents wanted them to pursue higher education. So it it really is, they they don't have a vision for the future at all, these kids. They feel they're self-reliant. They want to work hard, but they have no sense of where they're going, no sense of how they're going to get there. And so I'm sure it isn't difficult to find among them kids who are ending up in despair or because they have no future and no vision are vulnerable to the kind of radicalization we were just talking about. Yeah. And Daryl, just while we're on this, I'd just like to ask this follow-up question to Carol's point. So 
does that justify, like you said, the rage and extremism that we're seeing? You know, the fact that we're just seeing many people, young people in particular, empty. And we're also addressing these demographic shifts that may be challenging what they thought their future was going to be. I know you come from a small town (laughs) and so sort of picking on you a little bit because you got out of that small town as a young person, but just curious of your reaction. It doesn't justify the violence that we're seeing, but it does help to explain it. And I think Carol is exactly right that there is a geography of despair, certainly in rural America. I grew up in rural Ohio, north of Cincinnati, and I've gone back there at least once a year for most of the last few decades. And rural America has been devastated, lack of jobs, a lack of economic opportunity, the opioid crisis hit particularly hard there. It's like there's just not a lot of hope. And the problem is when people are feeling a lack of hope, they often look for scapegoats. They wonder, okay, it's not me who's causing this problem. Somebody else is creating this problem for me. And they often point to minorities, immigrants, or people who are different from themselves. And so in some of these cases, we do have individuals deliberately targeting individuals. So for example, the Buffalo case was a white individual who specifically targeted a grocery store where African-Americans shopped. And so these racial and ethnic aspects that are taking place, the demographic changes that are taking place in America are fueling some of the rage, which then leads to the gun violence that we are seeing. So let's go back to this gun violence piece, because I think we've set up a nice context that what we're seeing today that is sort of contributing to these events has been this pent up distrust, this lack of vision with regards to, you know, where equity lies in your particular community, sort of a tribalism is a word I'm searching for. Carol, you know, at the end of the day, the response that we've seen from policymakers has been on just the gun control and gun reform efforts. And you wrote a really interesting piece after Uvalde with your co-author around how do we examine the politics of how people actually talk about gun reform, gun violence. For those of you who haven't seen this article is entitled How Cynicism and Misinformation Add to the Emotional Cost of Violence. And it was so interesting in your analysis of Twitter uh, responses, how people fall and even talking about this issue. So there's this problem, right, among the people who perpetrated the crime. And then there's another problem, right, among those of us that sit on the outside who have our own views on how to interpret this. So would love to hear more about that study and what you actually found that's contributing to the polarization when we try to get to a center on gun reform and gun violence? Thanks, Nicole. What we found, I mean, we've been doing this for a while, but what we found in these two instances in both, we did one after Uvalde, and then we did another earlier one after El Paso, and then we did a much earlier one after the October 1 shooting in Vegas. So we've been doing this for a while based on Twitter data, which is limited. But what's interesting is, first of all, people do not hide their political affiliation. It's very easy with the majority of tweets we collect that my colleague Mary Blankenship has a methodology for collecting them up several days before and several days after these events, is that people say their political affiliation. So it was very easy to divide the respondents into democratic, right-leaning, 
liberal, I mean, Republican right-leaning, Democrat left-leaning, whatever. Um, but what we found is that the the emotions that we were able to capture through emojis were very similar after this latest shooting, much closer to each other than in the past, and that basically Republicans mainly had a lot of fear after the shootings and Democratic, Democrats a lot of anger. But the distributions were still pretty similar between fear and anger. But their verbiage, and here it comes to the topic of the of the piece is sort of the cynicism, the misinformation, the way they described the evidence was much more, was much different than their emotions were. So the ver the words they used were much further apart for Democrats and Republicans, but the emotions were similar. So we were, in a way, we were hopeful that they all saw the same problem, but again, it was captured in a language that was much more divisive. And that also showed up, you said, with emojis, as I was reading. Is that correct, in terms of how people responded? Yeah, the emojis were much closer. They were emojis that represent fear and that represent anger. Those were the two majority ones, with Democrats being angrier and Republicans more fearful. Wow. But again, both those sentiments are not that different. They're all recognizing this is a, a bad thing, right? But the language was so much more cynical. A lot of the Republican tweets were, particularly after Buffalo, were about how, well, if it had been a black shooter, it would be different. And because it was a white shooter, it was a terrible thing. And it wouldn't have gotten the same sort of attention if it was a black shooter. And and so that the cynicism sort of eroded the common emotions between the two groups. Right. And, and Daryl, sitting here listening to Carol, and I'm thinking... This is why the three of us and those of us that work in policy, why our jobs have just been more difficult, right? Because these sentiments are so strong. Daryl, when you think about these sentiments that show up on the internet, how does that make it even more difficult to pass gun legislation that impacts everyone? I mean, I know we're making progress, but how does that make the policymaking process even more difficult based on those public sentiments? Well, in today's world, there is so much misinformation and disinformation and conspiracy theories are just all over the place. So, for example, over the last few years, we've seen a lot of people focusing on what they view as a loss of freedom and a loss of liberty. We saw that in the early days and even the later days of COVID when people worried that vaccine mandates and mask mandates were taking away people's freedom, even though obviously it was protecting people's health but individuals did not interpret it that way. So based on that, they didn't want to get vaccinated. There also are people who think socialists are taking over America, and they think the left actually stole the 2020 presidential election. And so when you get false beliefs of that sort, but yet people feeling very intensely about that, and then Carol mentioned the fear and anger that often is associated with these beliefs, that fuels radicalization, it fuels extremism, and then it makes people think about options such as grabbing a gun and killing other people. That if they're that fearful and that angry, it then leads them to actions that are quite extreme and quite violent. And But when you have kind of widespread beliefs of this sort, it makes it difficult for Congress to pass sensible gun safety legislation. 
Because, for example, in rural America, like everybody has guns and they see guns as essential to their freedom and they don't want the government taking their guns away. So this, the strength of the police that are out there, even if some of the information is false or people are being misled in various ways, it makes it difficult for political leaders to negotiate the conflict and take sensible actions that actually would help us get a handle on this issue of gun violence. Yeah, Carol, did you want to jump in on that? Just want to add to what Daryl is saying. One of the things that we've seen, one, the fear in the rural areas and guns, as Daryl was talking about, it seems that the Republican response to their heightened levels of fear is not to want their guns taken away, right? That, that's how I protect myself. The very individualistic, I have a right to carry a gun, I have a right to protect my family, and so the fear is, unfor- instead of saying, I fear a lot of gun violence, it's I want to protect myself, unfortunately. So that, again, that's a very difficult and one might argue irrational emotion that policymakers have to get around. But then back to the issue of the fear, the sort of lack of way out that many of these people have, we're doing some work on vulnerability to misinformation, places that are most vulnerable to misinformation. And the pattern is very similar. High levels of despair, not a lot of jobs, declining communities, uh, not what we call advanced cognitive skill deserts. So places that don't have options for higher education and don't have a a lot of education opportunities. And unfortunately, homogeneity is also an additional factor. Sort of, again, it's poor rural white communities that are the worst. They're not the only ones. And so you start to think about the need to address the problems of entire places if policy is going to make a difference, right? It isn't just about guns, gun violence. I hate guns. I don't own a gun. I never want to. I think we should get rid of them. Most other countries that have had mass shootings enacted gun laws, and they haven't had more mass shootings. Why we can't get that lesson, I don't know. But I do think the problem is deeper than that. And some of the things that Daryl and you have talked about and I've been talking about we, we do need to get to those problems as well if we're going to have any kind of sustainable, lasting policy. I was in Berlin, Germany, not too long ago, like a few weeks ago, and I was asking the driver, I was like, hey, I, what happened to the Nazis here? And he basically said that the problems we're having in America would not happen in, Nazi, in, in Germany because they got rid of the Nazis or made it fashionable for them to show up without any type of scrutiny, and they don't allow for the purchase of guns. Here in the United States, I mean, I'm thinking, Daryl, do we really need to address white supremacy before we address gun reform, (laughs) right? Because it doesn't seem like we're getting this in the right order here uh, when it comes to the type of online extremism that's being fueled on the internet. I mean, all these issues are interrelated in very problematic sorts of ways. So you're exactly right that white supremacy, the ultranationalism, the fact that so many Americans actually do own guns, people are angry and upset, and then people then start to act on their worst case uh, fears about what's happening in American society. So there's both an economic and a cultural component uh, to uh, a lot of these uh, beliefs. Uh, The economic part is just the loss of economic opportunity. Like the American dream is gone for many Americans. There just simply aren't jobs in large parts of the country. And people are worried both about themselves, but also about their children and how well they will do. But there's a cultural aspect as well in the sense of 
people don't like people who are different from themselves and they worry about people who are different from themselves and they worry that people who are different from themselves are taking over america that they're changing america in ways that they themselves do not like and so this tribalism that combines kind of the economic component and the cultural component becomes very powerful and it fuels the extremism it fuels radicalization the toxic information ecosystem kind of makes it easy to spread false information. And then some people start acting on this in a violent sorts of ways. So it does kind of lead to this vicious cycle where these kind of beliefs feed on one another and then generate very bad behavior. Um, can I just ask Daryl a question, Nicole, which is one of the things you said as you started was that you were surprised how young many of these shooters were. And it just seems to me that one of the most simple solutions that could not get out the door was having kids less than 21 not banning their buying AK-15 assault rifles. Why did you don't need an assault rifle to protect yourself? Um, and yet, they're just maybe that's just the whole entire brick wall that we can't get over about gun control. But it just seems to me so obvious that these are not fully grown up people yet. And they're buying weapons that can kill 20 people in two minutes. Dara, you want to respond? I think that is a great point, And I would certainly support raising the age limit for the purchase of guns. Certainly some of the recent cases, there are people who basically the moment they turned 18 or were eligible to buy a gun, they went out and did it. And then they started shooting other uh, people. So yeah. certainly the age part of it is a big problem. But we just need more sensible gun laws in general, where if people have a history of mental instability or a history of domestic violence, those people should not be allowed to purchase guns. Yeah. And I, and I would add to that too, friends, that I think we also need more sensible surveillance of these online communities. We're just not doing enough, right? I was watching a news report after the Uvalde shooting, and it was mentioned that this young kid was in this parts of the internet, having these conversations, posting photos, was a trigger in terms of a red flag, but was not followed up on. And that's disturbing too, right? Because the type of surveillance that we see the internet sort of engage in the sky's the limit and how we lost track of these particular individuals is still somewhat confusing to me, which, which sort of brings me to this next question. What I'm hearing, unfortunately, right, this is a bigger issue than gun reform itself. This is an issue of really dealing with, and, and I like this conversation because we commonly just talk about, well, this is an issue of democracy. Well, not yes and no, right? It's an issue of democracy and what comes with the saneness, the sanity, and the civility of our democracy. What's driving people towards these, these areas of rage and fear? And Carol, I would say, when I voted for Obama, I might have voted out of my fear as a black person, right, to have some of the things you're talking about. And I'm sure there were rural residents and others who voted for Trump out of the same sentiment of fear. And so those elections matter. But more importantly, we just have not been able to reconcile these polarized societies that we've actually created over these last few decades, um, is my point. With that, who's responsible, <laughs> right? Is it social media companies or are social media companies responsible? Do we need policymakers to do more? Do we have to have better civilian 
education on these matters? Does it start with gun safety or does it start with more citizenship-like principles for people to exist in a society or coexist in society where they're not acting out of rage? I know that's a loaded question. I'm sorry, (laughs) but I'll throw it out there because this conversation has my head spinning. Dara, why don't I go with you? Like, who's responsible? The tech companies or somebody else? (laughs) Well, we're all responsible in various ways. As you kind of went down your list of possible options, I came to the conclusion of E, all of the above. Because right. we get a handle on these issues, we have to address the different aspects of this problem. So on the social media side, I think you're exactly right that here the social media companies just need to do a better job in terms of preventing online hate and things that facilitate violence. It's, it's always shocking to me whenever we have these mass shootings, when they go back and look at the situation, these people were in these dark web communities that were normalizing mass shootings, normalizing extremist views, normalizing hatred of blacks, Jews, immigrants, and other sorts of individuals. The social media component is a part of the online violence issue. But as Carol pointed out, it's not just a technology problem, it's a societal problem. We have to get a handle on the underlying causes, the economic deprivation, the inequity the racism that exists out there, kind of the cultural differences that we used to see as a strength of American society, but that now people are fearing people who are different from themselves and worrying that they're getting ahead of themselves. So there's no simple solution. If there was a simple solution, we would have solved this problem a long time ago. It's multidimensional and multi-layered, and therefore it's going to require a number of different actions. This is a big question, and I I think Daryl has a a great response. I have one little, I wouldn't want to say magic bullet, and it may be a pie-in-the-sky solution, but my new book, which will be out in the fall with Princeton Press, is called Hope and Despair, and it's, it's, it's a lot about our crisis of despair and how we got there, but there's documentation of these differences in the outlooks of young Americans. And there are a lot of lessons, largely from other countries, some from here, some from mental health interventions, some from well-being interventions, about how having hope is one of the first steps towards any kind of recovery from despair. And having hope is obviously essential, and I've shown that in many articles, for young people to invest in their futures. And so one of the, this is hardly a solution but a little small dent in it, I hope, is that young people need, at least I know and have learned, is that if they have mentorship, if they have some sort of grounding in a community, and if they have hope for the future, they want to invest in their futures. They want a better life. Their parents want a better life for them. If they don't have hope, and if it's worse, their parents don't have hope. Instead, they're fearful and angry, as Daryl described that gets transmitted to the next generation. And we have another generation in, dis- in despair. And as we can see, the young people in that cohort are very vulnerable already to radicalization and at a very young age. And so how we transfer lessons from population cohorts who may be more disadvantaged, but have hope and are investing in their futures and are gradually making progress to those who are falling behind and desperate and angry it's a big question, right? It's a, but, but I think that is a very deep part of the solution, right? We, we, we aren't going to change these cultural divides if half the people we want to bring together 
are angry, fearful, have no hope for the future, and essentially have a lot of anger, fear, and despair. Yeah. You know, I, I can't, and, and we're going to wrap up. This has been great. I can keep you here all day on this. I I listen and I think about my experiences as, a, as an African-American, and I think about the lack of hope communities of color in particular have experienced. But then I think about this conversation and I sort of translate it to, but we haven't gone out and exercised that much rage. And these are people that went through, whose generations went through the transatlantic slave trade. You know what I mean? Why is it so different? Carol, I want to go back to you in this hope question. We are seeing a lot more rage and we are seeing rage, don't get me wrong, from Black and Latina kids and around the country, but we're seeing a lot more mass rage from these other communities. Just so I can get in my head, what? Why is that happening? Or, or are we just not reporting on those other stages of rage that are happening among other communities? So, what I find in my data, not just in surveys but large end data, like for around the world data from Gallup, the big U.S. Gallup Daily Survey, which is like a, a thousand Americans a day. Unfortunately, it isn't running anymore, but for it ran for 15 years until 2019. Is that African Americans and Latins? I mean, I'm from Peru. I really know this is just rings so true in terms of what life is like in Latin America, are much more hopeful about the future. They are much more grounded in a community. They have. They have an experience with falling behind or somebody in their family has fallen behind. So those communities, I call them communities of empathy. It's a very different dynamic. It doesn't mean there's not gun violence. It doesn't mean there's not rage and anger. My son's a reporter in Baltimore and covers the murders in Baltimore. It's horrible. And it's, again, it's kids without a future. But in the large numbers, the big patterns in the data show that minorities are not just more hopeful for the future, but they're gradually getting ahead and they're making progress, as I mentioned before, versus low-income whites, the former white working class, is falling behind not just in terms of jobs, which they are, but in terms of marriage rates, in terms of health, in terms of despair, and in terms of their children investing in education beyond high school. And we all know, unfortunately, with the labor markets of tomorrow, A high school education plus a dollar will buy you a Coke, and that's it. You're not going to be able to get a good job. And again, it doesn't require college, but you have to get some kind of education. It could be tech skills, speaking on tech tank. It could be other kinds of vocational skills. The labor markets of tomorrow are really requiring more socio-emotional skills and cognitive skills and the kinds of things you don't learn in public high school right? It requires some more. And they also need mentorship to sort of guide them in the, in the right direction. They don't know what the labor markets of tomorrow look like. I mean, we don't really know, but we have a sense of it. But, you know, how many 18-year-olds from a low-income community know? Not too many. I do think that there's a huge gap there in terms of trying to teach, whether it's the communities or whether it's the kids, that if they make certain investments, their chances of getting ahead and not living, not going backwards even further in terms of their declining living standards and other things, um, if, we, if we don't teach them that, nobody else is going to. I think there is a role for public policy there. 
And that goes to the importance of social networks. Listen, Daryl, I'm going to let you take us out because I have to ask you this. Carol, Daryl is right. He goes home every year to his college reunion, okay, or his high school reunion. <laughs> Not only is he the tallest person in the picture, <laughs> but it has to be absolutely fantastic for his friends from high school to know that their buddy here is working in Washington, D.C., doing the things that he does. So, Daryl, I'll, I'll have you... Very liberal Brown University. Man. I know, as I was going to say, anyone to Brown, right? And I love it, Daryl, you just wrote that piece that I was just totally in awe over. He talks about the last reunion going there. And like I said, in addition to being the tallest person in the photo, what do you say, Daryl, to a young person that grew up in your town uh, that is sitting there, like Carol said, at the end of the day, there is the accounting of the small percentage of young people who go awry and act in rageful manners. But there's a large portion of young people who just don't know what they should be doing to chart a path. So what do you say to that kid that was maybe you growing up in a small rural town? Well, the secret of my life was education. That was really my salvation. That's what provided economic opportunities for me, gave me an opportunity to teach at Brown University and now to work at the, the Brookings Institution. And But this is the thing that is challenging for young people today in many communities, both rural and urban areas. It's a lot harder now. Education is more expensive. Healthcare is more expensive. Buying the first home is more expensive. And so... I understand the discontent that exists in large parts of America because their challenges are actually much deeper and and more difficult to overcome than what I experienced when I was that age. So there are structural issues of income inequality and, and racism that we have to address and we have to overcome in order to address some of these issues that we've been talking about. Yeah, we've been saying for a long time, President Biden, if you're listening, bring back the Kerner Commission. <laughs> that might be a way to actually delve into this and then address the issues like gun reform and student loan debt and other things that are creating this type of anger and fear. The two of you, I want to say thank you for this conversation. This is, Carol, something that we've been wanting to talk about on Tech Tank. We're so happy that you were able to join us. So thank you to Daryl and Carol for just being part of our, our episode today. I appreciate you both. Thank, Thank you very, you very much. much, Nicole. For those of you that are listening, there's only so much that we could do in a short period of time. But one thing that we did come up with is that we've got bigger fish to fry in this debate. And if we think that one policy is going to rectify what we have constantly seen as these normalized mass shootings, we've got something else coming. And I think the other thing that we learned is that we've got a new public square. It's called the internet. And there are a lot of conversations going on there that are contributing, I think, to what we heard today, a lot of these sentiments that really need to be addressed by public policymakers, as well as local communities and families who are trying to get us back on the right path. Polarization didn't happen overnight. It's taken a long time to get here. So thank you for listening to Tech Tank, where we take big bits and we transform them into bites so that you can actually understand the tech policy issues facing America today. Before I leave, Daryl, tell us the name of your forthcoming book. I have a new Brookings Press book coming out entitled Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. So I do get into these issues of the political challenges that we're facing today, the political polarization and steps that we need to safeguard American democracy. And Carol, your forthcoming book will be out when? In the fall with Princeton Press. And again, it's called Hope and Despair. 
Again, thank you everybody for listening and we'll look forward to hearing you and seeing you on our next episode of Tech Tank. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.